I mentioned it in December, but on December 9th, Pastor Wang Yi, who is the senior pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church, it's a congregation in China, and his wife, along with a hundred others from their church, were arrested by the Chinese government. Uh, the pastor and his wife were charged with inciting to subvert state power, and they're currently in secret detention. An elder and a bunch of others at the church were charged with, and this is a direct quote, picking quarrels and provoking trouble. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, this was oftentimes what was uh, said of the earliest church. They were referred to by some who did not care for what they were doing in the community as agitators. It's funny too because in modern political times, the civil rights movement of the United States oftentimes was characterized as agitators. And this is what happens sometimes when the truth gets under people's skin. Well, foreseeing the arrest in China, the pastor wrote a declaration that was published by the church right after he was detained. And it explains the meaning and necessity of faithful disobedience and how it's distinct from political activism and civil disobedience how Christians should live out the faith in a, in a hostile environment. And uh, I'd like to read portions of it. I'm going to encourage you to read the entirety of it yourself. I will link to it from my blog post this week, which, of course, is at the new prismchurch.com site. Um, but let me read just a portion. And we're not going to put it up on the screen, so I'd encourage you to to give me your attention, if you could, for a moment. This is from... Pastor Yi. On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. That is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I'm filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and of conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to, and it is not the goal for which God has given his people the gospel. For all hideous realities, unrighteous politics, and arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Christ, the only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. They also manifest the fact that true hope and a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short, and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about the heavenly eternal life this is also the pastoral calling that i've received the experience 
of a negative cultural reaction to the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a new phenomenon. It's as old as the Christian faith. The earliest believers were persecuted for what they preached. And our next lengthy sermon series after John concludes this spring will be in the book of Acts, which really chronicles most and many of those uh, persecutions. Now, strangely, so-called theological progressives have made some silly assertions about what Christianity has been about historically and about why the church was persecuted. One of those, and this is, I promise, the first and last time I'll quote Rob Bell in a sermon, but he says this, if the gospel isn't good news for everybody, then it isn't good news for anybody. And this is because the most powerful things happen when the church surrenders its desire to convert people and convince them to join. This is not only ignorant of the scriptural commands to proclaim the good news to an unbelieving world, but I want to point out real quickly that this perspective is ethnocentric in the extreme. What I mean to say by that is that only in the affluent, modernistic, enlightened West could anyone read the New Testament or study Christian history and come away with the idea that the early Christians were persecuted because they were too nice to everybody. In their eyes, the theological progressive were to presume that Christians served the poor, never tried to see anybody brought into relationship with God through their conversion to the faith, But what happened was the culture got so sick and tired of how kind they were, they just decided to kill them. Doesn't make any sense at all. And it's an insult to those martyrs of church history. Centuries of people who proclaimed that salvation was by faith alone in Jesus' death. And this is most certainly why the Christians in China are being persecuted. But the comfort and security of Christians in the West creates an environment where some can reconstitute the Christian faith into something very different than what is described in the scriptures and then can rewrite the historic person of the, uh, uh, the historic persecution of the church to fall in line with that new gospel. John Piper says this, Comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. Inertia is the tendency of something that is standing to stay standing still and of something moving to keep moving. The very things that we think would produce energy and creative investment of time and money in the cause of Christ and His kingdom instead produce again and again the exact opposite. Weakness, apathy, Lethargy, self-centeredness, preoccupation with security. I know this is true not because I'm this tremendous Christian, but precisely because I'm as broken as the next human being. And I know, I know that when things are going really well for me, when I'm prospering and succeeding, I am far more likely to not pray. That when things are aligned perfectly in my life, I'm one who would tend to think, I kind of deserve this. Isn't that sad? It's only possible if you live in the kind of affluence 
that we live in. Let me assure you that persecution can and does happen even if you present the gospel correctly. Just because people react negatively to the truth that they must be forgiven and they must follow Jesus, it doesn't mean you said or did anything wrong. In fact, it is a horrible barometer of whether or not your message is the right one, asking the question whether or not people like what you have to say. It's important to know, though, what is at the heart of the persecution you might receive. And today we'll look at this as we continue in our study of the Gospel of John, looking at the second part of Gospel of John 15. See, in the previous section of this chapter, John spoke of the power of love, and now he's going to turn his thoughts to the power of hate and warn his disciples about coming opposition from the world. We've discussed previously that John spends an awful lot of time, nearly half of his entire gospel, the entire gospel of John, dealing with the last week of Jesus' life. So it begs the question, why would John spend the majority of his book dealing with the death of Christ and the Passover week? And it's to show that at the heart of Jesus' life and ministry, is the sacrificial work of Christ, both as the priest and the sacrifice for our sins. Be aware of anyone telling you that the central purpose of Jesus' mission wasn't his death. It is precisely his death that is the gateway to people finding peace with God through the forgiveness of their sins. It is his death that enables us to be at peace knowing that God will never take out his wrath on our sins. He doesn't need to. He has exhausted it on Christ. And you and I now get to enjoy the benefits of being his children. It is this death, though, that implies that people need forgiveness and is at the heart of why many in the world disdain orthodox biblical Christianity. Naturally, We are proud and don't want to think of ourselves as needy. And as we studied last week, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We desperately want to say to others, I can do all things in my own strength. I have it within me to do such things. This section of Jesus' final instructions give clarity. See, this, this pride thing is just but one disability human beings have. Jesus is going to address three specific problems that not only face Christians and potentially lead to persecution, but are oftentimes the underlying cause of why people are hostile to the gospel of the scriptures. Three specific problems and then a solution that will hint and give us a a foreshadowing of what's to come in John 16 and a free teaser from the Lord for next week's sermon. So let's begin by just looking at these problems. And problem one is very simply something I call the place problem. You see, we live here, but we belong elsewhere. Look what Jesus says in verses 18 and 19. Quote, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. This is an amazing description because, again, there are people that would say 
that if the Christian message is received poorly by people, if people are hostile to it, we must be saying something wrong. And Jesus says, keep in mind that if they hate you, they hated me first. Jesus also says that as his children, we no longer belong to this world. He's chosen us out of it. The reality of the Christian's future is that we'll spend eternity in the presence of God, but we're not currently in that state. Our souls long for it, and we're told in Scriptures to want it and to look forward to it. We're told to focus our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is with God. We're challenged by the Apostle John himself in his first letter, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, that we're not to love the world or anything in the world. And he describes these things as the, the lusts of our flesh, the lusts of our eyes, the, the boasting that comes so naturally to us, the desire for others to see us as more important than them. And, and John goes so far as to say, if the person who evidences these things dominantly in their life, if these are the characteristics, the love of the world, if that's what's driving your life, it is likely that the love of God is not in you. John wasn't alone in his apostolic warning to think of ourselves as not of this world. The Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, in some translations, it says strangers and aliens to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, part of being a Christian at times is going to be being falsely accused. And we're told we're sojourners in Jesus' time. These would have been people that were not identified with a particular country. Nomadic, in a sense. And we were characterized as such. Peter would say, in this world, we're sojourners. We're strangers. We're aliens. But we're supposed to conduct ourselves in such a way that when people make false accusations... They seem to be foolish accusations. You hear echoes of Pastor Yee's declaration in Peter's admonition to trust God as sovereign over the kings of this world as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Our king is not of this world. And if you call yourself a child of God, you are seen primarily by him as a citizen of heaven. Therefore, your allegiance isn't to a kingdom or a country in this world, but to the will of the king of kings. And as his servant, you've been given the privilege of being your king's ambassador. Over the holidays, many of us in the church traveled. Some I've talked to have traveled out of the country, which would have necessitated bringing your passport. Some of you are citizens of other countries. And so when you go to a foreign country, you carry your passport with you so you can get back into your country. 
So there is a sense in which that passport is sort of your ticket. It's your identifying mechanism. It's saying, I'm, I'm a citizen of another country. I'm here, but I belong there. And this is the place problem we have as Christians. We're here, but our passport says we're part of the kingdom of God. And we have a free gift to be a part of the kingdom of God. But we can't see ourselves as citizens of this country, of this earth. We live and function inside earthly kingdoms, but we belong elsewhere. That's our place problem. Our second problem is what Jesus would refer to as our persecution problem. And that's basically if you follow Jesus, you will in one way, shape, or form meet his fate. Remember, Jesus says in verses 20 through 21, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If you read the Gospels, if you study history, you know that Jesus was a threat to just about anybody who thought he was going to encroach upon their life, whether it's a religious or a governmental institution, or whether it's just individual citizens who didn't want to follow what Jesus had to say. As I have stated previously, no one did a more masterful job of communicating Jesus' grace and love than Jesus. And still, there was widespread hostility towards him from one category of people. Now, I say this because by nature, all of us are part of this category. And it may manifest itself differently in terms of why people are part of this category. But Jesus received a hostile reception from the proud. From Proverbs to the, gospel, to the letter of James, Scripture is clear. God opposes the proud grace to the humble. Now, whether your pride is wanting to be the determiner of your destiny or the one who takes credit for your considerable gifts or accomplishments or possessions, or you glory in your own sense of morality and care for the world and its people, at least compared to other people around you, at the heart of humanity's problem with biblical Orthodox Christianity is that in order to be at peace with God, you have to admit you need forgiveness and you have to sign up to humbly follow the Savior in all aspects of your life. That requires a word that, particularly in the West, in individualistic societies, is just unthinkable to most. And that is the word submission. We have to submit our lives to Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. This is the words of Jesus, the red letters. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I have to quickly comment that 
Jesus is the one who says, some will forfeit their souls. This is not something that new Christians, this generation of Christians, Christians throughout the centuries recreated from something they thought existed in Scripture. Jesus is the one who said, there is a cost to proudly going your own way and ignoring His call to follow Him, and it is the cost of your own soul. However, Jesus assures us that if we follow Him, the reward is that many will treat Him as they did, treat you as they did Him. You think, well, what do you mean the reward? Well, it means that that's in, at times how you know the Spirit of God genuinely lives in you. That others are sometimes by virtue of your presence irritable. I've mentioned before that in 2009, the year before we started Prism Church, I tried my hand at stand-up comedy here in Los Angeles. I uh, went to open mics and was at a couple of comedy clubs locally where they had like free night, you know, where they let any bum get up in front of everybody. It was a bucket list item, something I promised myself I'd try, so I gave it a shot. And let me just say, I was really, really bad. And... Uh, and I ceased doing so because my wife told me it is going to be virtually impossible for me to plant a church and share the funny details of our lives. <laughs> so um, by comparison to other comics, I was squeaky clean, but by comparison to other ministers, you guys probably wouldn't be proud of a lot that gets done <laughs> in a comedy club. But oftentimes I was the only Christian, the only Bible-professing Christian in a group of comics that were trying to get up on stage and make every other comic in the room laugh. And what I, you have to know is that you know, up-and-coming comics are searching for material, and a lot of comedic material comes from your pain, and a lot of comics have a lot of pain and angst towards Christianity. Now, I was and am comforted by Psalm 10, which assures me that even though scoffers may mock me, that the Lord sees and comforts those who live for Him. And I share this with you so that you'll know that even though I, I am a minister, I know what you feel like sometimes in your workplace, maybe amongst your family, where you think, the way I see the world and the way they see the world are very different, and I feel like a real alien. They actually look like, at me like, you are an alien, you think like a weirdo. I mean, that, that sense of being out of touch, that is a tremendous feeling of fear that can come over you. And at times you may find yourself saying, can I be seeing the world correctly if everybody thinks I'm this crazy? Maybe it's me. This is not a new feeling or thought. As we get when we'll study the book of Acts, they actually said to the Apostle Paul, your great learning has made you crazy. You're, you're mad. This, this is not new. When you align your thinking with Jesus, you're going to find yourself one of his followers meeting his persecuted fate. But it doesn't have to be seen as a negative if Jesus is to be believed. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friend, we have a persecution problem. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to, in one way, shape, or form, experience His fate. We have a place problem. We live here, but we belong elsewhere. And the third problem we have is something I call the preeminence problem. And this is what Jesus says. If you hate Jesus, you hate God the Father. Verses 22 through 24 of John 15, Jesus says, If I would not come and spoken to them, they'd not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. I want to try to explain why this is easily understandable, the people of our culture who do not believe in Jesus would be severely agitated by such a statement or by your recollection of what Jesus has just said here. You see, one substantive problem that some who don't believe in Jesus have with orthodox biblical Christianity, and it's a real problem, is that we proclaim that Jesus is the king above all other kings. That he is the Lord over every Lord. That he is by nature God, that he wasn't created, but he's instead the creator of all things. Christians of the historic biblical kind worship Jesus of Nazareth as divine and believe that he sits at the right hand of God. He is the ruler of all right now. And he's due the worship of the one through whom all things were made. Hence, when we echo the teaching of Jesus that if you hate Jesus, you hate God, that's not received very well by those who think they have another way of understanding God. And I want to tell you something. If Jesus isn't really God, if he's just another man teaching you how to be a good person and be ethical in your world, then they would be right to be angry with you because that's the supremely arrogant statement to say, if you hate Jesus, you hate God. But if Jesus is God, as he clearly claims to be, then he's right in saying that he's due the worship of being the creator. And he's right in saying that if you hate him, you hate God. He is God. If Jesus is one in being with the Father, He's the equivalent of God, and hating Him is doing so. If Jesus isn't alive, if He's not God by nature, then He's wrong, and we're wrong for quoting Him. But the New Testament, friend, is crystal clear on this point. It's not vague, as some would have you believe. Jesus is preeminent over all things. And this is going to be a problem for some who aren't willing to bow their knee humbly to him. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Colossae. It's called the letter to the Colossians. He says this, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, this is not a veiled, vague description of Jesus' status. This is expressing the raw truth of the gospel, which is good news for the humble soul who knows they're rebellious and in need of forgiveness and restoration with their father. What a false dichotomy to create to say that the gospel isn't, if it isn't good news for everybody, isn't good news for anybody. The gospel isn't good news for people who are proud and think they don't need to be forgiven. That's going to end badly. It's good news if you're humble enough to receive Christ. If you're, if you're humble enough to say, I need forgiveness. I affirm what Jesus has done to pay for sins. Jesus has come to reconcile us to God. Yet for the believer, faithful proclamation and word and deed will often result in persecution. It will eventually come up with your co-workers and family members. They'll notice something's different. They'll ask you, why do you do that? Why do you hang out with those people? And if the implications of Jesus needing to be punished so that we wouldn't have to be, rub them the wrong way, if the implication of Jesus' death that they're sinful, I'm sinful, you're sinful, irritate them, they're not going to be shy about venting that frustration your way. And it doesn't even mean that you have to be weird about it. Sometimes Christians have been weird. Sometimes Christians have done some stupid stuff. Sometimes associations with political movements and and nationalistic groups have rubbed people the wrong way because they get associated with the gospel of Jesus, and that's a travesty. That's not what we're talking about. Sometimes just being a Christian who says, I'm sensitive to the reality of the gospel in his presence in my life will make people recognize and be irritated by you. When I was in college at West Virginia, uh, we had back then only one room with a TV in it. And everybody would go there to watch movies on our floor. And one night, everybody was packed in there. And I liked movies, so I went in there to watch. And I was like one of the last people in. And it was free cable week at the school, which is kind of fun because you'd get like HBO and all sorts of other channels. And, and so people would pile in there to watch movies and I climbed and sat in the back row. And uh, it didn't take long before I realized that they were watching the Playboy channel. And I thought to myself, what have I gotten myself into? I've got to get out of here and quick. And it wasn't because I was better than all of them. It was because I knew, like any red-blooded American male anyway, I, 
This is something I probably shouldn't watch, that I probably naturally want to watch, but i got to do what's best for my soul here and go. So I quietly tiptoed out the back, but the door out of the room was up by the front by the TV. There's no way out of this without people knowing I'm leaving. And I didn't want to make a scene. I didn't want to be like, I'm going to stand and declare to all of you, immorality is in this room. (laughs) Nothing like that. I was just like, get me out of here. This is so awkward. There were men and women in there sitting next to each other. I was like, this is just weird. And so as I was walking out the door, I looked back and every eye in that room was looking at me like this. (laughs) As if to say, this isn't... (laughs) This isn't good, is it? I didn't say anything. Now, in the months and years that followed, some of those people were very hostile to me. And I didn't say anything other than that this is something that I know my God isn't happy with me enjoying. And so I need to walk away from it. This is the nature of being associated with Jesus. This is the problem. It's a place problem. It's a persecution problem. And if you have trouble with who Jesus is, it's a preeminence problem. But the solution is very simply put by Jesus in John 15, verses 26 through 27, that the Holy Spirit has come to give us His presence and His power. When the Advocate comes, Jesus says, Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about me, and you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning." Next week, we'll continue our study about the role of the Holy Spirit in sustaining Christians in difficult times. And the first century church knew difficult times. But for now, we can take comfort in the fact that the Spirit of God lives within all believers, knows the pain we're experiencing, because Jesus can empathize with us. He's completely aware of what it's like to be persecuted, to be made to feel as if you're saying something that we don't agree with and we don't like you very much. And our awareness of His presence will give us boldness. But it isn't often until things are difficult that many of us will look to the Lord for His strength, for His provision. In all our difficulties, God uses the challenges we face to remind us that He is present and He is most certainly capable of providing what we need. The pressures of life and certainly the pressures of persecution serve to drive us to our knees where we once again come to realize the Spirit's presence and power. I'll close with this thought from John Piper. Quote, It's a strange principle that probably goes right to the heart of our sinfulness and Christ's sufficiency. The principle that hard times, like persecution, often produce more prayer, more power, and more open purses than easy times. Let's pray together.